Welcome to the main experience. Welcome back to the main experience podcast. You are listening to episode five. Thank you for joining us today. If you haven't done so already, make sure you hit that subscribe button on your podcast player to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. I'm excited to share today's episode with you. We have a conversation with a singer-songwriter living in Maine named Jenny Van West. We featured her track Live in a New Way on a previous episode, and today we will have a listen to the title track off of her latest album, Happiness to Burn. We'll finish episode four with a main soundscape recorded at my campsite on a recent trip to Mount Desert Island, Maine, as well. So let's jump right in. I hope you enjoy my chat with Jenny Van West. All right. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to the show. We're here at the Studio Portland, fantastic studio here in downtown Portland, gracious enough to offer the space to us. Um, so thanks to them for hosting the main experience. And thanks so much to my guest today, Jenny Van West. Thank, welcome to the Jason, show, Jenny. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. There's a lot to talk about. Um, and I want to really talk about your current projects because I know you've got a lot of things going on. But first, let's take our listeners back to the roots of Jenny Van West and how did you fall in love with music, guitar playing, singing, all that stuff. Let's hear it. Well, I, I really do believe that we're, we're just born naturally uh, to love it. It's just a part of being human. And so I can remember being very small and singing myself to sleep. Like I got into doing that when I was three or four years old. Yeah. I remember singing myself to sleep. And I haven't done that in a long time. And in fact, now that I'm talking about it, I realize like, wow, maybe I should try that again. Um, I've been going back to my roots a lot recently, and that would be a good one to revisit. Interesting. <laughs> sorry, <cool>. sorry, husband, <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> um, and, um, but I was... I had really good musical educators around me. I did not grow up in a musical family. Mm. I had a piano. It had been in my dad's family when he was growing up. Um, beautiful maple piano. The interior of it was not that great. It didn't sound good, but it was beautiful to look at. Um, you know, took some piano lessons because that's what my brother did. Yeah. And um, But I had good musical educators in school. And there's amazing... I grew up around Washington, D.C. There is really in the 70s there's awesome radio um, mm -hmm. I think there probably still is in Washington um, in fact I know there is um, so there was a lot of support even though it wasn't immediately in my musical family both my or not <laughs> I didn't have a musical family both my parents have beautiful singing voices but it was not part of what they were doing yeah. you know my dad was a lawyer he was in Washington that whole lawyer in Washington thing and all the things that go along with it. My mom was very supportive of his career. And so I did have the opportunity to go to schools that had excellent music programs. Um, most notably, I went to National Cathedral School, which is located at the National Episcopal Cathedral in Washington, D.C. And uh, I every time I get interviewed, I get asked this question, and I talk about Ramona Forbes was our music teacher there. And she it was a girl's school, and... She got us singing show tunes and she got us singing hymns and old English carols and she got us singing Gustav Mahler, Symphony of a Thousand and things like that. And the sacred music, we would perform it in the cathedral and we would be sitting up in the transept which is the sides of the cross right so we're way up wow on these steeply banked um what an experience an incredible experience natural and, acoustics too right so your voices just like are the room right yes amazing amazing natural reverb in that room and when i was there it gives me chills just talking about it <laughs> i was there in september and had the opportunity to sing in the cathedral which i haven't done in in a, and i've never done solo That's so cool so when we were setting up before the sound system was set up i got to sing in this cathedral again and it was transforming to me to get to stand there in the center of the cathedral and without a sound system and to sing up into the spaces 
And the reverb in there is unlike anything I've ever had the opportunity to experience. And with the sound system, it was a whole other whole other experience. So all the girls came in. I was part of the program that day and got to sing in there. So, you know, Ramona Forbes, Mrs. Forbes, really kept us in line. She had to. There were like 80 of us in the lower school. And she kept us in line. She taught us. She made us learn music theory. We would fake stomach aches and have to go home when we had tests and music because we were, you know, <laughs> those of us who were prone to anxiety got really scared. I mean, really, she, and I'm like, she's the teacher we all still talk about. Um, so that was, that was the, that were, those were the roots. I mean, that's where I learned, to, I, I mean, I grew up learning to sing my part, hold my part. And so that was integral to when I got later on, when I got more interested in acoustic Americana music, bluegrass, listening to bluegrass and so forth, and singing harmonies with people that those skills were ingrained, like knowing how to listen to myself, knowing what it felt like not to be able to hear myself. And so therefore giving myself the space or like, you know, cupping my hands to my ears so that I could hold my part with someone else. Um, she got, she got that, that rudimentary vocal training in there and I took voice lessons with her. And That's so amazing. Forth. Yep. So what about the guitar actually there? What about the, where did the guitar yeah, come so into it? Yeah. So what about this guitar? So, um, uh, fast forward, I was in another school. Um, I was at Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts, incredible music program, whole building devoted to music. I mean, that was like, I was so, and then my senior year, I lived right down the hill from that building. And I had started playing mandolin because I'd gotten introduced to contra dance, contra dancing when I was 16 and went to the mountain school in Vermont. And so I've been playing mandolin and, and then senior year, we, I had to take this music class to graduate, you know? And I was like, okay, you know, I'm not really dreading this or anything because it's just fun. But we had to learn guitar. Ah. Everybody got a loner guitar and I started playing guitar. And then a very, very close friend of mine who actually lives in Cambridge, Mass, who's now my son's godfather, gave me my first guitar. And it was a it was a sweet little country thing with, I mean, I'm not exaggerating. I think the action was about an inch high. <laughs> you know, the, the neck was like totally probably pulling off and the bridge was pulling up. I mean, and he just, he handed it to me, no case. He said, if you can play this, you can play anything. And so I just loved that thing. I was learning Simon and Garfunkel songs and playing in my room. And that was the beginning. I was like, oh, my God, I can play songs. And I was learning Bob Dylan songs. And As a singer, I'm sure it was refreshing to, like, be able to pick up an instrument and all of a sudden be able to accompany yourself and be like, oh, I'm, I can I can be a one-man band now. Yeah? I mean. Yeah. I mean, it was, I, it was, I remember being very much in love with the whole concept, although I didn't start having some sort of big dream about being this, that, or the other thing with it. It was more the opportunity to just, like you were saying, to enjoy making music and, and, and being able to entertain myself and my friends, but mostly myself. So let's talk about your recording career. So you have, have this, you've had two major releases. Did you record anything before that or? So, um, not really. Okay. I, 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 well, I should say this, uh, when I was graduating from Wesleyan university, a dear friend of mine who lives in Seattle, she's a Seattleite. We were at college together. Amazing, amazing singer named J.R. Rhodes. L great songwriter, good guitar player, incredible vocalist. Um, she was putting together a demo. And so this was when I was 23 and I had no idea how to do any of this, but she was like, I'm making a demo. I want you to be on it. So I sang backing vocals. That was the beginning of being in the studio. And then I just kind of dropped the whole thing for almost 20 years. Wow. I learned to play the fiddle, got into that, um, had a great time with that, had contra dance bands, um, never, never recorded with them, just was doing the live thing and, and enjoying that, dancing a lot. And it was, I think when I hit about 40 that I was like, oh, okay. I realized now that it wasn't that I lacked the talent. That's what I thought. I was like, I don't, I just don't have any talent in songwriting. I got this nice voice, but no talent in songwriting. I realized, oh, if you become, if I become teachable, <laughs> allow myself to be teachable and don't give up, then I might actually uh, have a great time with this. So I started writing songs again 
And I'd actually been working as a massage therapist. I got my massage license and, and I needed some time off from that. Just was feeling a little burnt out. And so I took six months off to play music. And then, <laughs> then next thing I know. So I, um, it was in uh, 20, I think a 2011. I did do some recording down at the track farm with Pip Walter. He and I had a duo called the Bloomers for a couple of years. And we had, a, we had a great time together. He's super talented vocalist, like probably the, Definitely one of the most talented backing vocals I've ever worked with. And we did do some recording and we were starting to make a record. And and I decided that I I hadn't really even given any thought to where all of this was going and decided that I really needed to make a record on my own. Mm-hmm. And so I enlisted the help of Ed Desjardin up in Reedfield. He and I had been playing together a bit and doing some gigs together and... So we started recording up there, and that record turned into Something Real, which was released in 2015, mm-hmm. just regionally, locally. You know, it was it was on all the, you know, outlets and so forth, but it was mostly like a local, regional release. And then did a three-song EP with him called Honey and Hive, and that came out in December of 2016, and that was dedicated to uh, a young lady named Camille, who passed from this earth the day she was born. Mm. And uh, that happened in my family growing up, so it was a very poignant thing. I, I didn't really feel like I had the emotional wherewithal to, to actually promote that record. It was more like this needs to happen. So these three songs came out uh, in 2016, and then I going forward, I was um, I was touring with Ed actually, thinking about I need to make another record. This was in the fall. Uh, this was, we we headed out on tour the day after the 2016 election, mm. and. We were going on this short run down to, uh, down through New England and down to Maryland and back. And on the way back, I was like, oh my God, I, I could feel myself starting to sink. Like, I got to have a big, scary project in front of me. So I turned to him and I said, are you ready to do another one? And he goes, you know, I need, I, you need to branch out. Like, you need to go to a different studio this time. I want, you know, he really was insistent upon me having, like, the next level of studio mm-hmm. treatment and a very dear friend of his that's now a closely associated of mine, Shane Alexander, who lives in Los Angeles. Um, he and he and Ed and I, I had met him through Ed a number of years before, and he had just built a beautiful studio in his home in Los Angeles. And so I had this dream. I thought someday I want to make a record there. And when Ed turned to me and told me he was kicking me out of the nest <laughs> in the nicest possible way, I said, what do you think about this? I think I'm going to hit Shane Alexander up and see if he's game to do this. And he was. So I made a record there. I went out in uh, April, just about, it was about two years ago, uh, April of 2017, spent a solid week in the studio. Out there, we brought in amazing engineers and musicians from LA to yeah. be on that record. And and that, le- you know, it's been it's been quite a ride. It's been an incredible ride, but quite a ride. Um, and so that record was released internationally. Okay. Um, I'm still promoting it. I'm going to Europe this summer. Wow. I'm still working on that tour. <laughs> That's coming up in July. That's amazing. Yeah. So you're you're like a year spent touring and promoting that then at this point, right? Yep. It's been awesome. been um, it started out before before it was officially released in April. I was at South by Southwest for the first time. Uh, doing fringe shows there. What was that like? Oh, it was great. Yeah. It's yeah. I actually would love to bring, encourage people from Maine to just come down for the time. Don't don't buy a wristband. Yeah. Like there's there's unless that's your jam. Like but there is so much incredible music happening on the edges of that festival. Yeah. That um, I mean I don't make any money from it. It's all it's all about innovation and in music and preserving traditions and meeting people and you know it's it's where I've, I'm finding my creative home is yeah. in these to add ed, these edges where people are actually are, are really doing a lot of innovation, not just in music, but in, um, in how music's getting out there because that stuff is changing so fast. And that's a whole other topic that we need. Oh we yeah. Spend I mean, hours yeah, that's, talking about. It's, it's incredible. The, the difference in the value of music is something I've always been fascinated with because I am of the age that I came up from, I remember 
playing with my parents' records. I remember cassettes. I remember CDs. I remember Napster. I remember the first iTunes files, you know, and now I'm at this, you know, I've seen it all. And at the whole time, I'm a huge, avid consumer of music. So I've seen, and being interested in the recording industry, I've seen the, this weird not balanced system of the value of music and what it takes to make the music not being valued. It's, I don't know what the answer is, but I feel like more people are making music than ever. Well, it's definitely has lit a fire under a lot of people. There's also a ton of well-produced, mediocre music being released. I'm yeah, just going to say right, that. You right. Know? No, so that's, like, a, that's a good way of stating yeah, it. Yeah. And, and you probably know even better yeah. than I because of your background with engineering. And Anybody can make a, a, a good sounding record today almost anywhere but that doesn't mean it's anything that's like has any great substance that's why it's fascinating for me not knowing your history and knowing that you weren't songwriting for that long and listening to those two records you paint a beautiful picture with your words and your voice and the arrangements and the production on those records they're fantastic I would not think that you weren't writing songs for 20 years you know well, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for saying that. And it's if we're lucky enough to get the attention of people who know how to teach and we are lucky enough to also be in a teachable space, all kinds of things can happen. And that first record was really there was a, <laughs> I was I was processing 20 years of stuff. Yeah. I will say that. So there's a lot of songs on there that came out you know, during the time before I started recording that and during actually there, there were songs that, you know, came up during the re making of that record that that lasted about a year and a half, that space where I was making that record. And it's um, <laughs> there was a lot of stuff I needed to process. Let's just put it that way. And I had in my producer at Destardin, I had this I had a friend, I had a colleague I had a duo partner. I had, you know, he was playing with, we were both playing with other people too, of course, but like we, we were doing a lot of shows together. I had some, it was like an artistic residency basically. And also I had reached that moment where I was like ready to kind of put the thing under the knife. Yeah. And I, and I started developing my creative process and I had someone really trustworthy who, who was a much better songwriter than I was to, um, give me the right kind of feedback who had respect for what I was creating already, but like he could see, he, you know, he's, he's really, really good at helping people develop. That's one of his personal gifts. So I was very lucky to land in the right place. And he, you know, what a great recipe of 20 years of, you know, songwriting bottled up and a producer right there that could help you sort of harness that and focus that. And that's awesome to hear. You yeah, know, that's that's what that's what that's what real artists that's that's what they that's when they find a producer. They don't want to let go sometimes, like you were saying, yeah. because it's like it's home. You know, yeah. that's that's very cool to hear. So, so you did cover what made you go back for the second record was you you had a couple years under your belt and you were ready to ready to go back. I was ready to, but um, I don't want to delve too deeply into politics right now. But I will say that. When Trump was elected, I think I, I think I can speak for a lot of people. Some there's like something happened to me, and I it was deciding right after that little tour that happened right after the election to just launch headlong into this what was even bigger than I realized recording process, yeah, um, and and release process. A huge, huge I mean, that's, growth. That, it was a growth a, process. That's a huge undertaking, right? I, I mean, was, I had to, I had to have it. It was a life-saving move for me. Wow. Um, and what's a little bit ironic is that, you know, um, I don't know if it's ironic. I guess it's ironic at that. <laughs> I did it as a, as like, I, this is the only thing I know right now that's going to save me from the depths of despair. I mean, I think I had to, I needed something so I could pull myself together. Yeah. And I almost didn't do it. I mean, like Shane, we made it. He said, yes, we made a, we made, we set dates. And then I just dropped off the face of the earth and he contacted me, I think in December or January. He says, just want to make sure everything's a go. And I'm like, ah, 
I don't know. He's like, wait a second, wait a second. And he just, he like, he just like tossed me some photos of the studio and like, <laughs> he just said, come on, come on. You know, you, you. Basically, in so many words, come on, you can do this. We can do this. You need to do this. In fact, you said you were going to do it and therefore you should do it, yeah. you know, and, um, and, and I, you know, I had a different kind of support coming from him and he, you know, very, very different experience, um, with that. That leads into another question I yeah. had. So, because you had, sounds like two really healthy relationships with two different producers. Um, what was the difference between those two records? You know, it could be technical things or even your writing process or the, the production process. Was there any big differences between the two? Yeah. I mean, I think... You know, everything that I did with Ed and learned from him was immensely helpful. I mean, I, there's no way I could have made that second record. I don't think I could have made that second record without going through all the incredible stuff that we did together. Um, but definitely different process. I mean, as I said, I think before was that it was about a year and a half. I mean, I had a bunch of songs coming into making that first record that were ready to go. Um, just needed a few tweaks with arrangements and so forth. But then there was a lot of writing that happened during that time. It was a year and a half process. And so I was going up to his home studio in, in Reedfield, which is a little town should visit sometime. Great little spot up, um, west of Augusta. Okay. North and west of Augusta. God's country, as they, as they say, it's just gorgeous up there. Um, you know, I'd go up there and stay overnight. We'd play, we'd play a gig do some recording, maybe play another gig, and then I go home. Like, there was a lot of overnighting, you know, with his family. So I got to know his family and his dog and all that good stuff. Um, fast forward to working with Shane, you know, I mean, we we did probably, you know, I'll just be really upfront about it. I mean, there was probably 40 hours of Skyping, pre-production Skyping that happened. There was a lot of hairs pulled out, like, on my part, like, being like, ah, I got to get that line right. And he was, he was a, he had a very different, he has a very different style of, doing that pre-production stuff and arranging and so forth. And, you know, he's he's been doing this professionally out of Southern California for 30 years and he's worked in big music management and so forth. So, like, he really has another perspective on things. And he's him, you know, it's a different person. And he really, uh, A, did the same thing that Ed did in the sense of, like, seeing the value in, this, in the raw materials. Mm -hmm. Like, he could hear the album right away when I sent him the iPhone recordings. Um, and he helped me pick Cull Down to 10 songs. Um, but then we did like this rigorous pre-production arranging and stuff. And he, um, you know, he's got a much more cut and dry kind of a way uh, about him. It's, you know, it saves time. And he's, he's not, he, and he was, it was great because he wasn't scared to be direct with me. Um, it gave me a lot to work with. I'm sure I shed a couple of tears and drove my husband crazy for approximately two years. Um, but so that was, you know, there was that condensed thing. And then he had a really well, good, well paced, solid week in the studio. So I slept in the, I slept in the studio, which was similar. I used to sleep in Ed's studio too. Um, slept in the studio with all those beautiful guitars. And I, we had, I think we had like a day together and then his mixing engineer, who also had helped him set up all the mics and everything for our sessions, came in and we had two days with the bassist and drummer who were absolutely wonderful. But I'd never worked with hired musicians that I'd never met before. Like he handpicked, the, you know, we went back and forth and everything, but like he handpicked these amazing people to be on my record. And they came in. Shane was producing and Brian was was doing all the live mixing and and engineering and it was terrifying. And we had a music, we had a photographer come in. I mean, like, it was like, I feel like I grew about seven or eight sizes from the inside during that week. And I had a couple of epic meltdowns. And that's when Shane would put me in the car and we could go get lunch or we'd drive through Malibu Canyon, listen to some songs and like chill out. And that is learning to be a higher level of professional. Yeah. And he was really, really patient with me. But I also have something to offer, and he knew that. And so he drew out really excellent performances from me and everybody else. And and then they spent a week in the mixing studio 
mixing that record. It was a, this was a good, solid week of mixing. What an incredible feeling having your songs be brought to life by by people in that place that are, you know, consummate professionals. And really, I mean, I, I'm sure it was incredible just seeing seeing those things come to life in a, in a little bit different way. Oh, oh, absolutely. And I mean, and I'll just mention one thing about that, which is coming back to the local before any of this happened, which is my friend Jonathan Cooper, who's a, a luthier here in Portland and makes beautiful world-class violins. Mm. And actually... There's a whole other story there that I won't tell you, but about trading my 1951 Chevy for the violin that I have now. <laughs> Most epic trade of my life. <laughs> and, but, you know, he was, he hosted a music session that I'd still do on Wednesday mornings. He offered to host that when I got my violin fixed there. And it was like, this is like 2009. But um, nobody showed up for my session the first couple of weeks. And so he would just sit down and play with me. And I started singing for him and he, and it's playing some songs that I was starting to write. And he was the first person to, to hit record and go and that was and to play on my songs and that was the beginning of that feeling and so the evolution from that moment to now is really when I look at that I'm like that's 10 years that's a decade it's only a decade and I still am amazed when somebody picks up an instrument it's not as much as a, of a surprise anymore when somebody takes the time to pick around or sing on you know, one of my songs, it's still a wonderful feeling. That's awesome. That's great. Well, I'm happy you kind of pivoted back towards local local stuff there because I want to talk about some of the other projects and organizations. I don't know much about them, so I'd love to learn. Um, let's start with, this one sounds really interesting to me, the Maine Immigrant Musical Instrument Project. What is that all about? Yeah, so that, that name... That long, wordy name I came up with when Troy Bennett from Bangor Daily News, who covers Portland, was doing a story about this. I needed to have a name for the organization. <laughs> it was, um, so that, that came about in uh, about f uh, four years ago this week, actually. I was walking down Congress Street after a session. I had my fiddle, my violin, my fiddle, <laughs> I had my fiddle, my guitar with me after playing at local Sprouts with a bunch of friends. And um, I had a lot of things on my mind. I was, it was right after the huge protests in Ferguson and huge protests in Baltimore. And those were the ones that started to break down some walls in my mind because I'm from Maryland and I have a family history that goes back 400 years in Maryland. My ancestors had a thousand acres on the eastern shore of Maryland at a plantation and it was when those, when Freddie Gray died mm -hmm. in Baltimore, and then there were these massive protests. It, I can't even believe that it took this much to really start to break down the walls in my mind and make some connections for me. But I real, it was that realization that some of the, I have, I had some of these people out in the streets in Baltimore right now are in my family tree. That's mm -hmm. a reality of having slaves in the family, and I don't know who they are. And I'm almost, I think I'm almost ready in my own personal process to, to maybe begin to make some of those connections. Wow. If people are willing. And which is a whole other topic. That's, that's incredible. A whole other topic. Yeah. But it's, um, it is, it's, it's, and I, I, I used to not even know how to talk about this. And now, now I'm more comfortable talking about it. But it was after Freddie Gray, about, a, it was about a week or two after. And also, my husband had been in a bicycle accident, I think, a week before what I'm about to tell you. And we had received so much kindness from people. So I was really in this interesting state of mind. And there was this young African man walking down the street on the other side. And I just said hi to him, I think, because I realized how many... I just was having those thoughts of, like, how many people cross the street? Because they don't even know how to how to be on the same side of the street as a black person. Like there's, that's, and I understand why that is, is like we've been separated for so long. We, we, we don't, they know, uh, you know, black people know more about me than I know about them. I mean, that's just a reality as a white person. So like I, all these things were on my mind. So I just said, hi. And he, he said, Hey, is that a guitar? And I was like, oh, yeah. I, you know, this is the other thing. I feel more bold when I have my instruments with me. I'm more, like, comfortable in my skin and more comfortable in the world. And 
we just struck up a conversation and I found out more about his life. And in, in, in two minutes, I was like, Hey, uh, you know, I know you probably need a lot of things right now. You just came here from another, you know, from Congo and like, I don't even know anything about that, like really, but I can probably find you a guitar if you want. Because he was a guitar player and he just looked at me like, wow, sure, that would be amazing, you know. So I um, I just put the word out on social media and I, and I went home and told my husband, I was like, so I met this person on the street and I, I didn't tell him, or, I don't even know who this is. I don't even know what he's going to do with this instrument I find for him. If he sells it for 200 bucks, so what? I'm like, I don't even know what this is. And we ended up becoming friends. He ended up playing, uh, we pl- ended up playing gigs together. We ended up, he ended up helping me get connected. And I started getting more involved with, you know, at that time, you know, he was living in one of the, unfortunately, like crummy, bedbug infested, cockroach infested buildings where people don't get their their sinks fixed, you know, because the landlords just let it go. Um, you know, those kinds of things. I started meeting people in this building and, you know, it was a pretty rough place, but like there were these amazing people I was, you know, who were, I was, I learned so much at that time. I sort of, you know, kind of sort of bringing in like, you know, people would do little food drives and I'd bring them over there. And then like, you know, clothing drives if people needed a bed, someone was in the hospital and was coming home and had nowhere to sleep except on the floor. Like it was, a, it was an explosive time of learning. And all the while I was starting to learn, I was like starting to meet people who were artists, people who had, I mean, tons of people with musical backgrounds because they came from church cultures where there was tons of singing incredible music and so like I was like oh this is really interesting how did I end up here and um it was a time of tremendous growth so fast forward to now I still do this um right now I've had a a space at the immigrant greater Portland immigrant welcome center it's just around the corner from the studio actually on Preble Street I can bring you over there sometime if you want to see it cool really cool organizations that are there I have a um I have a uh, free guitar class that meets on Wednesday nights. Anybody's welcome to come to that. Um, but priority is given to people who are, uh, particularly people who are in an uh, asylum process where they have this very long waiting period mm-hmm. between the time they file for asylum and when they're actually legally allowed to f- apply for a work permit. That was really what I saw, you know, four years ago. I was like, oh, my God, there's this huge, there's six, there's like a year in there where so many things can go wrong. Like people have no option but to live in these places where prostitution, drug dealing. I mean, like these are like I was meeting some of those clean living people I'd ever met. No smoking, no drinking, no drugs. And but they're in an environment surrounded by it, right? They're separated from their family. They've been they're coming from war zones like um, there's. They're living on faith and public assistance. And it's like, you know, there's tons of people who are doing really, really amazing work to help bring people in. But I was like, oh, there's this like incredible thing that happens with music, like and universal language, right? universal language and people needing here are people needing things to do. I have my own personal history that that leads me to want to, you know, be of service to people generally. And um so uh, so the guitar program was something that just happened spontaneously that day. But then out of that grew, um, I did get a grant from the Mountain School Garden Hill Fund, which is a, um, I went to school there in 1984. They have a wonderful grants program for alumni. And during that time, I was able to provide um, better service to people. And uh, a friend of mine from Mozambique uh, made a decision to start a guitar school in his apartment. Wow. And he was, he wasn't working yet and he's an incredible musician. And I was like, I would love to help you with that. I actually talked to someone yesterday who would be available to teach. Well, <laughs> that person came in and taught for a little while and then he couldn't do it anymore. And I don't have a teaching background per se, but I was like, oh my God. So my, myself and my friend, Matt Baker, who had donated that very first guitar, yep. he and I like, and working in conjunction with Tutuma, we like did all this uh, amazing like guitar school in a four-story four-story walk-up like people would just like people would show up with their friends and like oh god we got to find more guitars and we get guitars that were in pieces and we get guitars that were beautiful and like we had donations from um go down guitars in canada and like you know i mean like and then we started the international open mic so, so i'm guessing that's just the international open mic is just a place for these folks to be able to come and perform for people then so the international open mic grew out of 
that fourth story walk up guitar school where we would like do a class and then it would just sort of at, after about an hour it would just uh, evolve into Tutuma leading African church songs yeah. and they would oh, just man. like go I mean it was like awesome. three part harmony That's like true. I was like I oh imagine. my god this is on it's gonna be beautiful unreal what I'm hearing here like Matt and I would look at each other and just be like can you even believe what we're in the middle of right now like uh and you know so I was like I was like, do you guys, you know, you want to perform? I mean, like, there's this theater that's, like, right around the corner from you guys, you know. Um, and I, I thought about it a lot. And I was like, I know I knew the, um, I knew Blainer and we had great respect for each other. And and I just approached her about, can we do a, and I'd also been to a, <laughs> to a whole bunch of, like, African gospel concerts and seen how they, and saw how they run them. They don't charge admission at the door. You just walk in. And they and they do this, what's essentially like a live auction. Half they have basically like an auctioneer in the middle of the show, who's like auctioning off like the CDs, you know, or whatever. And like, who's going to pay a hundred bucks for these, you know? And then like, it's a point of honor and like and to give back to the community. If you have reached them, and there's an ethos around that, and I and I and I really want to reach deeply into that because I think America needs to be reminded, like it's okay to be community minded and take care of your neighbors. It's okay to do that. We're, t we're really in this frame of mind right now where it's like individuality, you Instagram, Facebook, like make your, if you make money, you get famous. Like, like everybody admires you for that. Like, okay. But like, let's remember like just beneath the surface, we're still people. And let's take care of each other. And so I really saw this ethos of like, oh, wow. It's just like, it's just a point of tremendous honor to um, stand up and meet that responsibility of taking care of the community. And it's, and you have stature from that. Like, so people, I saw that and I was like, wow. And um, I, you know, so I went to Blainer and I said, can we run a show like this? I want to do a show like this. I want to try this. And would you be willing to try a different way of doing the door? Like, let's sell tickets in advance. Let's sell tickets at the door. Let's make it really clear to people they can come in for free. If you don't have a job yet or you don't have an in, you don't have enough of an income to afford, you know, because I and it's, it was in the most diverse part of Portland. That's where that's located is in actually one of the most linguistically diverse. Wow. Couple of block radius there is one of the most linguistically diverse areas of the country. Wow. It's right here in Portland, and it's it's kind of endangered because there's a lot of development going on. So this is the way cities go, right? So um, she was like, "Sure, let's give it a try. Let's try it. You know, we'll pass the hat in the middle. We'll do something along, like kind of a hybrid approach to to bring people in." What we ended up with right off the bat was an amazing show with an incredibly diverse lineup and an incredibly diverse audience for Portland. And I was like, okay, here we go. This is how you do this. I, you know, we were really lucky. And that first group um, from that four-story walk up on uh, Montgomery Street was the house band that night. Okay. So they got the room warmed up. They came in and started playing at 6.30 and just kept going until we got the show started. And we did some songs together as part of the show that night. And that then it was just like off and running. Now all those guys, you know, like half of them went to Canada. Wow. Fled the country, unfortunately. A lot of people have gone to Canada. That was really another hell piece of that for me. I was like, well, they dealt with this all the time back in Africa and people are moving all over the place, but um, they know how to survive that. I don't yet. So I learned. Um, and, uh, but, you know, um, and a lot of them are working three jobs, don't have time to come out. But we keep in touch on WhatsApp. That's what, that's what text messaging is for, especially WhatsApp, keeping in touch with your international friends. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm blown away. It's like such admirable work. I mean, it's, it's, it's awesome. It's awesome. Well, and it, it is awesome. And I, I want to address one th that. I appreciate that very, very much. And I want to make sure that it's really clear, like, this whole free guitar school thing that I do, I'd not start that. My African friend who was seeking asylum at the time, that he started that. He, it's his idea. Yeah. It was his idea. I just followed that. And right now it's in an interesting moment because it's, I don't have, I'm, I'm 
I'm in the Immigrant Welcome Center, which is incredible. And so I feel like I'm getting this daily feedback, but I don't have particular point people who I can go like, is this a good idea? Mm. I try and always check stuff out and be like, am I on the right track? You know, I don't, you know, I'm very aware of the fact that like I'm yet another white wom- white person who is perceived as doing this amazing thing for immigrants, you know, and it's like, well, uh, I get way more out of it than I put into it. And it's just, that's always going to be true. And it's really um, important to recognize that like the reason I do this is because I see a tremendous value in the people who are coming here, who a lot of people are afraid of. We have things to learn from each other, but we have to have ways to get together, which is where the international open mic is an incredible yeah. social event. Yeah. It is a really integrated audience. That's so cool. So that's, so that's where the ha- that's where the good stuff happens. Yeah, to have that forum where people can rub shoulders with each other that wouldn't normally. Exactly. You know? We have a reason to be together that's like- and that's what that's what music and theater and poetry and art is so good at. How about this women singer songwriter composer showcase of blue? What's yeah. that all about? Yeah. So, um when I was back at Wesleyan University with my friend J.R. Rhodes, who I told you about earlier, um, and a bunch of other people, that's actually how I met her was through a, we had a women's singer-songwriter collective. This was like post-70s, mid-80s kind of a thing that was going on. And we, there had been some older young women, uh, you know, a few years ahead of us who had had this thing called the Women's Singer-Songwriter Collective. And a bunch of us just picked up the moniker and kept it going as whatever we wanted it to be. And it was a way to just meet people to play with and uh, try out some songs and, you know, whatever people needed it to be. And we made a tape together, a cassette tape that I still have. I need to digitize that. That actually, I completely forgot to tell you that that was the first time I recorded. I got a couple songs on there. Um, So I had wanted, I had been thinking for a while, like it would be really fun to have some way to bring women together that would demonstrate to the community at large just how diverse it means to be a woman composer or a woman songwriter. I I um, do have the privilege of spending a lot of time with like, for instance, like in these country venues when I'm traveling to Austin, Nashville, Los Angeles, like, um, but especially like Austin and Nashville where there's, you know, I'm, I'm with you know, other white women producing country music. And that in and of itself is extremely diverse. But what I really wanted was like, as the creator, like to like recruit and see as purely selfishly, really just to see how, how broad the, the creation, the musical creations of women are in this community. And I haven't even like, I feel like I have only begun to touch the like touch the surface of that. So we do it. Uh, I have longstanding good relationship with Blue, another woman run venue. I mean, I've had very good, nothing against you guys out there. I really, I am indebted to so many men. I don't want it to sound like I'm, but I do find as a middle-aged woman producing music, producing shows, there's something that is, um, it's a little easier for me to communicate for them to understand what I'm trying to do and why um, with some of these things. So uh, so I contacted the folks at Blue. Actually, I had my friend uh, Zylie August. She's a, another wonderful singer-songwriter. She actually was ready to take a break from this. She was thinking about, we were thinking about getting something going together, but she was ready to take a break from performing for a little while and just, you know, I think uh, do some other work. So she bequeathed her evening at Blue to me, which was once a month on Sunday, Sunday evening. And uh, we got this thing going about a year ago. It's been, I think this month is going to be a year. And I just started bringing people in. I was like, let's, we're going to, you know, the way I produce shows is I get professional sound support. Um, Nesmus Savadoff's been uh, sound engineering there. Ian Hunt has done sound engineering there. Um, My friend Sierra's done sound engineering there. So uh, I wanted good sound support. So we're going to pay a sound person to produce us so I don't have to think about it. Um, and try and build a community hang, you know, and, uh, it's been, it's, it's been amazing. Uh, another incredible performer. You might want to interview someday. My friend Maimon Ernst, she's, um, Maimon Johnson. She's, uh, an, an amazing singer and songwriter with a long history, just a beautiful person. And she's been our artist in residence for the last, 
I don't know. I feel like she's going to be artist in residence for a decade, but she's for like the last year, like the last nine months, I think she's done that. And so she and I have been um, having a wonderful time putting that show on. And uh, it's had a tremendous response. Like people want that and need it. And, you know, we get tons of guys up on stage, but we might like, like we have uh, my friend Sonia came, she's in a gypsy jazz band and she plays accordion and sings. And like, we got her and her, like, it seemed like 18 guys on stage. We had a fabulous time. We've had poets. We've had um, Christina Richardson came in and did her amazing performance, singing, presentation, poetry, theatrical, musical, amazingness. So, um, and then we have tons of singer-songwriters coming in. And we've had people from San Diego. We've had people from all over New England. Like, it's it's a thing to do now. I love it. Which is great. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. That's that's fantastic. Um I mean, I just, uh, this has been a great conversation. I love hearing about all these projects. It's so cool. Um, I want to kind of wrap up with a few questions on Maine. Uh, this is called the Maine Experience after all. So you're not originally from Maine. You said you're from Maryland. What got you here and how long you been here? So I was living in Seattle for a dozen years and I actually met my husband in high school, but he was living out there too. We had, um, our kids were born out there and then we came back and we're living near my parents for a couple of years after, um, my second child, our second child was born. But, um, it, it was just not working out for us to stay in Maryland and we kind of didn't want to, we wanted to be up in new England. And so we actually <laughs> had the freedom to just be anywhere on the East coast cause he was telecommuting. So we actually moved to Maine, bought a house here and, uh, I bought, we bought the house sight unseen, moved here in 2005. Don't recommend doing things that way. It worked out great for us. Um, and, uh, so we've been here since 2005, what did you want to know about Maine? Like, why um, are we here? Or like, well, yeah. So, so you've been here since 2005. So you really just picked it just, um, just because you thought, well, it seems like a nice place to live. Well, um, we looked. We were looking like northern New England, like, like not just a little bit of snow. Like, we don't want a lot of snow. Like, not as much as Canada, but more than Cambridge, Massachusetts. So, uh, and Jeff needed to be near an airport. Um, and it was like, well, we, uh, loved Portland. We'd been here once <laughs> and we we're like, sure, let's go. And my girlfriend and I are in a similar situation <laughs> where it was like a job came up and we were like, well, we've both been there before. Uh, yeah, <laughs> sure. Why not Portland? You know? Yeah. And we love it cause it's a, it's a great town. There's so much going on and it's a diverse place and, uh, the food, it's just it's it's got a lot going on it's yeah. really cool so on that on that front food and drink where's your go-to spots to grab a bite grab a drink oh yeah what's your kong tubat on washington avenue okay that's there's a, a uh i call it restaurant alley because there's a bunch of little restaurants that have been popping up there and getting um but kong tubat's like absolutely my favorite place to eat right now okay um and uh along with Duck Fat's Window, which is right next door to the Oxbow Brewing, all in the same little uh, okay. uh, bit of real estate right there. Um, but at uh, Duck Fat's little window there, they have poutine. Yeah. Which, mm-hmm. Yes, right? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking I've, about. I've, I've had the poutine Once at you've Duck had, Fat. Yes, it's... you've had the poutine at Duck Fat. Well, they have it at the window there, okay. and you can just go, then go walk right into Oxbow Brewing. Um, I personally... Uh, don't drink, but I love to be in that in that kind of an environment where they're making things. There's a lot of creative energy in there. The nice thing about breweries is that it's a very different ambiance than a bar. Yeah. Oh, you yes, know? exactly. The, the focus is different. It's for everybody. It's for kids. It's for dogs. It's for families. It's for <laughs> people drinking, people not drinking. It's kind of. It's kind of. That's what we, that's what I like about them. You know, I like yeah. beer too, but uh, there's a definite ambiance, and every, all of them are different. You yeah. know, and you can tell. That all the spaces are inspired by the people that are running it and working there. It's um, yeah, the brewery scene here is really cool. Well, I want to say one other thing about Maine. One other quick okay. thing about Maine is that um, the thing that I have noticed being here is I, you know, I spent a lot. Of, I've lived in small towns before. I mean, Portland is kind of like a big. Maine is kind of like a one big town, and I wanted to observe the culture a lot around music before I tried to like make any kind of this that imposed my own ideas about a place. I wanted to see how things operated. And 
um, that takes time. Yeah. It takes time. And one of the things I think that is universal about Maine is that winter is long. If you grew up here, you came from away, winter is long and people have to take care of each other. And so while there is definitely like a culture in Maine generally of like maybe that sort of classic Northern New England thing of like um, letting like staying out of people's business, like watching people, but staying out of their business as neighbors and so forth. We had a, we had a cord of wood dropped in our, in our driveway, like three winters in a row when we first got here by our neighbor, who's a tree guy. Mark McCarthy, hire him. He's a great person and, um, and a good arborist. And, you know, um, that you kind of, that kind of says it all to me about Maine. You know, it's, it's, it can be a very harsh place to spend the winter, but people do take care of each other because it actually is a matter of survival sometimes. You know, it's tough. March is hard. You've been through it. March is not fun. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, no, that's it. Goes back to the community thing too. Is that and even in a place where you think Maine, where some people may be living a little more remotely, there's still a community at large there, and mm-hmm. people help each other. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what being a human's all about. Yep. You know. Yep. So, um, what about favorite place to go visit? Like a region, day hike, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. So. If you have a couple hours and you're coming from Portland, I think going to Two Lights. I was just down there again. We have a French exchange student living with us right now. And I was like, oh, can I take you down to Two Lights? Yep. Two Lights yep. is a beautiful, beautiful place to go walk around and just get right back down to basics really quickly. It's, it's, it's granite and other rock, tide pools, ocean and sky. Yeah. And... Then if you have like a weekend, Acadia, yep. going up into Acadia and just take taking it in and doing some um, doing some hiking. Yep. It's funny you mentioned two lights because that was one of the first little day trips that I took my dog on when I had like a Saturday morning. And I it was like probably one of the moments where I fell in love with. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I live here now. And mm-hmm. what a beautiful spot. That and place is a total state treasure. Man, beautiful. Yep. Yep. Absolutely beautiful. Yep. And to think like, oh man, like those beautiful rocky coasts, that's like Maine. <laughs> you know? It's right. like Right. And and once you get up once you get up to Acadia, there's this whole other Maine that unfolds and it's it's it is different and it's it's a lot more uh, you know, I don't know what what's what a lot of people would consider to be quote unquote Maine. And then there's also like Moosehead Lake. You know? Like if you go up to Moosehead, it's a whole different deal up there. Like go up to Moosehead, take the Mount Kineo ferry, go hike to the top of Mount Kineo, hang out there for a couple of days. It's it's a whole other man. Sounds amazing. Yep. Sounds amazing. Um, okay, advice for someone who's thinking about making music and is hesitant and thinks maybe I don't have something to say or I'm not good enough or no one wants to hear what I have to say. What's your advice for the inspiring musician, whether it's someone wanting to pick up an instrument or someone, what's your word of advice to someone in that situation? Well, we, as we were discussing at the very beginning of this conversation, everybody's got a story. And I think I would say it's really uh, the same thing that our teachers and parents told us when we were kids is just be yourself, <laughs> you know, and that is, a, that is a very tall order. It's a hard thing to do. Because there is more stuff than ever coming at us from the outside. I would strongly encourage people to take care of themselves. Okay. So like, and that takes, and that means <laughs> the stuff your parents told you to do, get enough sleep don't eat crap all the time. Okay. (laughs) Like, and, and really recognize that like, uh, and and I think, you know, take, learn as much as possible as you can from uh, the musicians around you, from the, from what you're listening to, from the, from uh, people you meet at the library, like, like learn as much as you can from other people, take as much as you can. Like, um, if you have the opportunity to delve into and like learn music theory, like just don't be scared. You know, it actually is rocket science. Like you can engineer people's emotions with that, 
You know, it's built into that. Like, don't, don't be shy. Don't be scared to say, I don't understand that. Don't be scared to say, you know, but, um, you know, learn as much as you can from, from the world and the people around you, but don't take your cues about who you're supposed to be from that. Like develop a five minute a day meditation process. Mm -hmm. Like learn what it's like to be on the inside of your own mind. Take care of your body. Um, take care of your instruments. Uh, don't say no to stuff to do with music just because you're scared. That was the vow I made to myself when I got back into this. And um, I have wanted to say no a few times, <laughs> a few notable times. Like, no, maybe I won't go make that amazing life-changing record. Like, no, it's, it's a yes, you're gonna do, I'm going to do it. It's a constant battle, isn't it? It's a constant um, battle with some, some people just have that voice. I shouldn't say some people. I think everybody has that voice in their head that sometimes tells them, don't do it or don't mm -hmm. take that risk. Don't be uncomfortable. Don't, yeah. If, and, and take care of the music first and foremost. This is something I've learned along the way. And like, uh, if you have red flags about people, listen to that. Like, don't, don't waste time hanging out with people who are involved in toxic relationships with other people who are involved in, who, uh, are, you know, for instance, have so much to offer and tons of time. There's a reason for that. Like, it's okay to experiment, um, embrace the one-off concert, like, or, or, you know, like try things out with people. Um, you know, don't be scared to, don't be scared to experiment, yeah. but don't box yourself in either. You know, I think, gosh, I'm there's so, there's so much good <laughs> advice there and all that, what you just said, it's incredible. All okay, right. Last good. question. Okay. What's your pitch to a person thinking about moving to Maine or a person just thinking about coming here for a vacation? Pitch, pitch Maine to the listener that's like, I've never been to Maine. What's going on up there? Okay, so now we're doing the, uh, this is like travel. Kind of, yeah. Like, okay. Uh, is this somebody I, I want them to come and stay? Or is this somebody I, I just, you know, or like... Uh, I, I don't know. I'm asking everybody this question and I'm kind of getting different answers and it's sort of... Um, because I think some people are like, yeah, come visit, you know. <laughs> but some people are like, maybe maybe hesitate before moving here, you know? I'm getting a sense of that because they, they want to make sure that you understand what it is like up here. And, you know, a, a common theme seems to be make sure you know what you're going to be doing when you get there because... Right. Um, well, you know, since we're sitting here in the heart of Portland, yeah. right here on Casco Street, you know, Portland is not Maine. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. And I, I really encourage people uh, come to Maine and, like, like this is a this is a very actually very diverse state in so many ways like uh demographically politically um it is gonna hit you in the face with contradictions uh winter is long and hard the beauty here is like of a type that's really unparalleled and so you know, give yourself opportunities to take in the culture and then like get out into, into like natural landscapes and really take in the ocean, take in ferry rides, take in, you know, climbing some little Appalachian mountains, go into the Western part of Maine and, um, and go into those little stores that are along the two lane highways out in the boondocks in Maine, like go in there and get a slice of pizza. That's what people are doing. Yeah. Do the things that regular people are doing. And because there is this whole like transplant thing. I mean, I'm part of that. Yeah. I, you know, I'm like, I'm part, we're, we're part of that. Yeah. And I'm so, learning there's a lot of that here. There's, there's a, lot a lot of people that aren't yeah. from Maine but came to Maine once and were like, mm -hmm. ooh, I yeah, can be Yeah, and we got here. really put on the map because of restaurants yeah. last year because of Bon Appetit magazine. Thank you, Bon Appetit magazine. But um, just, uh, you know, I think one thing that's been really neat for me is like living in a neighborhood where there's a lot of people that were born here. They're here their entire lives and having the opportunity to quietly get to know people. Um, and really uh, get a feel for, you know, what does it really mean, for instance, to like live here for generations? Like, I don't necessarily, um, I'm not in the camp necessarily that says, oh, we have to only use the word Mainer for them. Like, obviously, I'm, I'm embracing that for, for, for so many, so many people, but just like, uh, just take your time. I think that's really it. Like, take some time. 
take your time. Don't be in a big rush and think you think you got it. You know, I was like, <laughs> that's good. That's good advice in all sorts of aspects. Go of life. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Jenny Van West. Uh, it's been an incredibly enlightening conversation. You've Aww. been um, the impetus for this podcast was to meet main musicians, and I decided to broaden that and talk to all sorts of interesting creative people. But you're the first musician that I've had the chance to sit down and talk to in Maine. And I feel like I've only just touched the tip of the music community here in Maine. And if anybody else is as half as sweet as you are, Aww, uh, thanks, the, uh, I'm, I'm in Appreciate for a really, it. really cool uh, journey here. So thank you so much for taking the time oh, to talk to you, us. Oh, thank you, Jason. And, and thanks for doing this. Great to meet you. Awesome. Thanks. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jenny. I found her passion for not only music, but the human spirit to be really inspirational. Jenny is embarking on her first European tour, July 7th to the 21st in the Netherlands and Germany. For more details on that and all things Jenny, make sure you check out www.jennyvanwest.com. Next, let's have a listen to the title track off her latest album. Here is Jenny Van West with Happiness to Burn. I got my old sweetheart back in my arms again. And that good Mr. Bluebird, he's working his charms again. And Lady Luck, she's taking her sweet old turn. I got happiness, happiness to burn. So don't ever go, don't ever be a fool again. I got my heart on my sleeve. And it's dedicated, dedicated to you Keep the fire warm until that moment I return, we'll have happiness Happiness to burn to burn. I just love the production on that record. Such great energy. Uh, that's going to do it for episode five. Make sure you follow us on social media and tell all your friends about your new favorite podcast, The Main Experience. Today I'm going to leave you with a main soundscape I recorded uh, in the early evening sitting around the campfire on a recent camping trip I took to um, Mount Desert Island, Maine, um, where Acadia National Park is. An absolutely fantastic trip with my parents and nephew and my girlfriend and our dog and it was it was beautiful and wonderful and all that good stuff. So here's a little recording I made there. Uh, we'll see you next time on The Main Experience.
The Main Experience is produced by Audio Evolutions. Audio Evolutions is a small business run by me, Jason DeWald, and I would love to work with you on your next project. In the modern age of digital media, it is easier than ever for people to be creative, but poor audio quality can distract from all of your hard work and ruin your project. Let Audio Evolutions help evolve your sound to the next level. Offering services ranging from full-scale music production for your next album, podcast production to give you the professional sound you deserve, audio post-production for video, location sound recording for video shoots, and even voiceovers. Send an email to jason at audioevolutions.net and let me know how Audio Evolutions can help you evolve the way your world sounds.